Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. I hope you're having a wonderful day. For me, the start to a great day is finding uplifting podcasts to help me with a better mindset each day. And I hope Open Your Eyes does that for you. There's just something empowering about getting your mind right before each day begins. So today, wherever you are as you listen to this podcast, I hope you get a new perspective of how you can think and live better. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please take a minute to share it with a friend. Just use the share button on your podcast app and send it with a message like, I thought you might enjoy this podcast. It just might be what you need to hear today. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about courage and how we can all muster the courage we need in life. Helen Young Hayes' dream began as a young girl in Starkville, Mississippi. Helen's parents were Chinese immigrants who had come to the United States seeking political freedom. And after receiving their graduate degrees, her parents accepted jobs in academia at Mississippi State University. But the family was unfamiliar with America's geography and didn't realize they were moving into a deeply segregated community in the throes of the civil rights movement. As a child in Mississippi, Helen had headwinds in her life, things beyond her control. Her family was the first Asian family to move into this college town. She was the first Asian woman to graduate from her high school. And growing up, she saw people kept in the margins of society based on the color of their skin. However, thanks to her parents' influence, Helen left Starkville to get her degree from Yale University. And upon graduating, she worked as an investor on Wall Street, eventually becoming a portfolio manager for Janus Investors. She later served as managing director. During this time in her life, one of the most pivotal moments happened rather unexpectedly in an airplane. While employed by Janus Funds, Helen boarded a plane in Denver headed for Chicago, expecting it to be an average trip. She slid into her coach seat near the front of the plane. The McDonnell Douglas DC-10 she boarded held 285 passengers and 11 crew. Al Haynes was the captain. He had 30,000 hours of flight time with United and 7,000 hours in the DC-10. There were 11 flight attendants aboard that day, along with the crew. The flight departed on time at 2.10. The flight lifted off the ground as usual and took to the sky, ascending to cruising altitude at 37,000 feet. One hour into the flight, the plane took a slow right turn and the pilots felt a jolt and the autopilot disengaged. The first officer took hold of the control column to steer the plane and Captain Haynes immediately inspected the control panel to see what was wrong. There he saw the rear engine in the tail of the aircraft was malfunctioning. But when he tried to throttle back or redirect the fuel supply away from the engine, his controls simply didn't work. He then closed the valve, shutting off the fuel to the tail engine. All of these emergency moves were done in about 14 seconds. The first officer indicated that he had little or no control of the aircraft through the steering column. The aircraft was banking right with the nose down. He turned the steering column to the left, no response. He pulled the command column all the way back, no response. The captain joined in with his control column, still no response. The captain was afraid if they didn't do anything, the aircraft would soon roll upside down, 
So they reduced the left-wing mounted engine to idle and put maximum power to the right engine. And this helped level the plane. The engineer notified the crew that the gauges for fluid pressure on all the hydraulic systems read zero. With the plane still pulling to the right, they were losing altitude. Another United pilot riding as a passenger came forward with suggestions. And despite the chaos, the captain listened and instructed the extra pilot to inspect the flaps when they attempted to use the controls. He did and reported the flaps were not functioning. So essentially, they could not steer the plane. They had no control. They started to make awkward directional adjustments using the power of the engines, but that's all they could do. The pilot reached out to the nearest airport, which was Sioux City, Iowa. Air traffic control cleared the aircraft for an emergency landing on runway 31. But next, the crew debated whether to deploy the landing gear or to attempt a belly landing. In question was what would happen when they put down the landing gear. Would it cause drag? But they decided that if the gear were down, they would have some absorption during the landing. So they used a manual lever to extend the gear using gravitational force. All the while, the remaining eight crew were preparing the cabin and giving instructions to the passengers, preparing them for a significant impact. As soon as he could, the captain came on the loudspeaker. Here's what Helen heard the captain say. Ladies and gentlemen, we will not be making it to Chicago after all. We have sustained tail damage to our plane. We're going to attempt an emergency landing in Sioux City, Iowa in 35 minutes. And I'm not going to kid you folks. It's going to be rough. Helen started to pray. She didn't know exactly what to pray for. She said, the first thing that came to mind was the pilot's hands. I closed my eyes and just prayed for the pilot's and ask the Lord to give them guidance and wisdom and show them what to do to guide their hands. Well, as they approached the airport, the crew made a series of right-hand turns using the engines, since they had no control, to dump fuel. But in the process, they were no longer lined up for runway 31. Instead, they were headed for runway 22. But the fire trucks and emergency vehicles were all on runway 22. Runway 22 had also been closed for a year. So all the vehicles had to quickly move. As the plane made its approach, it was flying 220 miles per hour. Now, a typical landing speed is 140 miles per hour. And it was a miracle that the pilots got the plane even close to the runway. But moments before landing, the plane rolled right suddenly, and the captain had no means of controlling the aircraft. The airplane impacted the ground with its right wing spilling fuel, which ignited immediately. The tail section broke off from the force of the impact, and the rest of the aircraft bounced several times, shedding the landing gear and breaking the fuselage into several pieces. At final impact, the right wing was torn off, and the main part of the aircraft skidded sideways, rolled over onto its back, and slid to a stop upside down in a cornfield next to the runway. Helen said, Immediately after impact, the plane was just careening about. I looked up, and as I was being thrown around in my seat, I saw myself surrounded with flames. And I thought, dear God, don't let me be burned. And then the flames passed, and suddenly we were somersaulting over and over, tumbling upside down until we slid to a stop. All you could hear was the sound of crackling and sizzling and burning. I could hear passengers moaning, and I was hanging upside down, and I thought, well, 
What do I do now? This isn't what I expected. Helen was severely burned, but would get out of the crash alive. She said when she was a young girl and would attend church, she always wondered, at the end of her life, when I'm sitting at the edge of eternity, will God be real to me? Well, after the crash, she reflected on her prayers and impressions and concluded, God is indeed very real to me. Of the 296 people aboard, 112 died. Some from the tremendous impact, others from smoke inhalation. Almost everyone seated in first class and the back of the plane died. Those seated in front of the wings survived. Unfortunately, 52 children were on board the flight that day as part of United Airlines' promotion of Children's Day. Many of the children were traveling alone. 11 died. After the crash and its aftermath, Helen had to decide whether she would get on an airplane again. Now, I don't know about you, but I would have the same question. After a plane in which I was a passenger lost all steering control and slammed into the ground and burned up and killed 112 people, would I get back on a plane again? Well, Helen isn't alone in making these types of decisions. We all have to make decisions that require great courage from time to time. And it's not easy after a failure or a letdown or even a crash to muster the courage to get back in the game and do what you know needs to be done. Well, after a few months of avoiding flying, Helen knew she couldn't do her job or live her life afraid. So she mustered her courage and stepped back on an airplane. She wasn't confident in the plane, but confident that God would hold her whatever the outcome of the flight might be. She has since flown more than one million miles. She said, I would never have stepped back on a plane again if I didn't firmly believe I had been totally saved by a miracle and that I have a purpose in my life. And she says every time a plane hits turbulence, her mind races back to United 232 and she remembers the feeling when that plane went down. It takes courage every time she boards a flight, but she also sees the crash in her life as a gift that helped her find a higher purpose for her life. And you know, Helen isn't alone in her courage. Dave Sanderson was the last passenger to exit U.S. Airways Flight 1549 after its emergency landing in the Hudson River in January 2009. He spent one night recovering from hypothermia at a New York hospital. The next day, he had to make a decision. Could he fly back home to North Carolina? Well, when he arrived at the gate, he wasn't sure if he could get on the plane. At the gate, the attendant knew what to do. She communicated with the captain, and the captain and first officer got off the plane, listened to his story, reassured him it would be okay. Sanderson now flies around the country giving training on courage and helping people to improve their ability to get back in the game. Now, I don't know about you, but there are lots of things that take courage in my life. Admitting mistakes, righting a wrong, having a difficult conversation with a son or daughter, finding the discipline to overcome a habit, doing what I know I should do even though I don't want to. Courage is the ability to act in the face of fear and especially difficulty. It is the willingness to take risks and face the work needed, even when the outcome is uncertain or potentially dangerous. Courage is resilience, determination, 
and perseverance. To muster is to gather the troops for a formal inspection, to bring them together to demonstrate and see their collective presence. To muster courage is to bring together your bravery to assess your path forward and display that you will do what you set out to do. Let's say you're building a business. It takes courage, doesn't it, to decide you will put aside the time and give a real effort over a long period of time to grow that business. It takes courage, despite having failed at something, to make the decision to get back up and try that thing again. It takes courage to organize your day, to be disciplined, or to change a habit. It takes courage to approach a prospect, to invite them to an overview of your product or business. It takes courage to risk embarrassment, to put yourself out in the open, to risk ridicule. It takes courage to try something new that you've never tried before and risk failing. But here's the thing. Courage is essential for growth. And in my opinion, few things in life that are worthwhile and remarkable happen without courage. Opening our eyes to how to acquire and use courage, therefore, is key to a remarkable life or business or family. So if all of this is true, then here's the question. Is courage something innate? Meaning, does courage come naturally to some people? Or is courage a developed skill that you can learn? A few years ago, authors published a study in the Harvard Business Review that asked and answered this question. Are you born with courage or is courage like a muscle that you can build or improve or grow it? Well, the authors suggest that some of us are born with more risk-taking genes than others. But at the end of the day, they say that it is non-biological factors, meaning our psychological makeup, our values, our beliefs, that help us with courage. So, does it mean that our kids inherit courage from their parents? Yes. Research shows that low self-esteem, anxiety, and conditioning to prioritize safety above all else can and does diminish our ability to act with courage. So, if your kids are preoccupied with safety, they may not be as courageous. However, to do the opposite, to learn to act with courage does require some practice and some deliberate moves to help us and our kids be more courageous. One of the tools that I've used with myself and my children throughout my life is this. When you're scared or wonder whether you should step forward when things are unclear, when you're trying to decide whether to give your whole heart to an effort for a period of time, even though the end outcome is unsure, Use this simple skill and you will see courage start to increase. Take what you're trying to do, jump forward in time, and see the scenario if everything goes wrong, the worst case scenario. So let's say you're seeking the courage to work your business more each day and with more intent. But you're afraid if you put forward all that effort and time, you might not get any results. What's the worst case scenario? Well, you'll have time that you invested for the lack of results, but is that the end of the world? No, because the same scenario includes the prospect that you might develop new relationships, learn new lessons, or demonstrate to yourself or your kids that you have the courage to try new things. So in the end, now you have a clear idea of the risk and rewards, and you've put it in better perspective, which gives you more energy and courage. 
So what are you facing right now in your life that you're unsure of? Perhaps you need to decide to do something important, or you need to invite a potential client, and that might be embarrassing if you're rejected. Whatever it is, what is the worst case scenario? What's the scenario if you're not successful? You see, oftentimes the worst is never what we want, but it's not as bad as we think. This can give you more courage to act. Next, we have to realize that our courage to act is diminished by our own thinking or overthinking. Too often we let our way of thinking get in our way. We want to lose weight, join that weight loss effort our friends are joining, but we're afraid that we won't have the courage to stick with it and we don't want to look bad in front of our friends. So we overthink it and that diminishes our courage. You see, many people are prone to imagine and focus on more negative than positive. There's a huge body of research that shows we magnify the negative and tend to look at the worst and the start stops us. In fact, when we look at ourselves today, and think about better days in the past, we tend to make today worse than it is and the past better than it was. And trust me, for most of you, you weren't nearly as good looking years ago as you think you were. And trust me again, except for a few of you men listening today, you're not as ugly or as heavy or as old looking as you think you are now. Paul Rosen, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, has done a lot of research on negativity bias. It means that when you compare two events, one positive and one negative, the negative will always be more powerful. For example, the negative view of an impending dental surgery is more negative the closer it gets to the date of the surgery, as compared to the positive view of an upcoming party is positive the closer you get to the day of celebration. It occurs to me that it's easy for all of us to make a list of things we don't like about ourselves today. But it's harder to make a list just as long of what we like about ourselves. This is because we focus so much on the negative. And when it comes to acting with courage, we need to consider equally the positive as well as the negative. Sarah was born and grew up in Clearwater, Florida. And after graduation, she was off to Florida State University. After college graduation, she took the LSAT hoping to go on to law school, like her father. But her scores on the admission test weren't high enough. So instead, she accepted a job at Disney World. But it was short-lived. She didn't like it and kept seeing the negative in things. Then she found a job with a company called Donka and started selling fax machines door-to-door. It wasn't all roses, and it wasn't common for her to be escorted out of apartment buildings for trespassing. On one particularly bad day, she thought to herself, I am starring in the wrong movie. She thought, call the director, call the producer, because this is not what my life is supposed to be like. She said on that rather bad day, she went home dejected from her attempts to sell fax machines door to door. That day, instead of focusing on the negative thoughts she was constantly having about herself, she started to write in her notebook what her strengths were. And this was particularly tough because the only strength she was sure about is that she was a good salesperson. But something happened inside of her as she dismissed the negative bias and embraced the positive. She started to muster her courage. And she got bold in her thinking. And she wrote in that notebook, I want to invent a product 
that I can sell to millions of people. But even though she wrote it, she didn't know how to make it happen. The thing is that Sarah was a talented salesperson. And as she embraced this fact, she started to perform better at work. And she was soon promoted to sales trainer for her company. And they had a dress code. And that code required she wear pantyhose in the hot Florida sun. And she hated the seamed feet look of pantyhose and open-toed shoes. But she liked a controlled top, which helped her body look firmer. So she tried cutting off the feet of the pantyhose when wearing pants, but the hose rolled awkwardly up her leg. So she kept experimenting with the modified hose. Soon her concept improved, a lightweight garment to help control those trouble areas and to help you look slim. And at age 27, she moved to Atlanta with her fax machine selling job. And there she spent her savings developing the type of hose she wanted to wear. With her idea and prototype in hand, she mustered her courage and drove to North Carolina to visit with several of the hosiery mills there to present her idea. All rejected her. But two weeks later, she got a phone call. One mill operator had shared Sarah's idea with his three daughters, and they loved it. So the next year, Sarah and the mill owner worked together on a prototype. She spent weekends in North Carolina doing the work. She secured a URL for her website, and she found that being courageous helped her feel like she was doing what she was meant to do. Then she was faced with finding a name for her product. She thought and brainstormed, and she recognized that some of the most recognizable brand names in the world had a K sound to them. Nike, Kodak, Coca-Cola. Remembering research that comics got more laughs with K-sounding words, she kept her eye out for K words. And just by chance, later that same day, she heard the word spank. It had a K. It was one syllable and kind of catchy. So she changed the spelling from spank to spanks with an X. Then she had to find a retail partner. So she mustered her courage and reached out to Neiman Marcus. And being a great salesperson, she knew she needed to connect with the buyer. And part of her presentation, she courageously modeled the product for the buyer herself. Soon, the product was in several Neiman Marcus stores. Later, she thought, how could I get the attention of the public? What's the most courageous move I could make? So she put together a product basket and sent it to the Oprah Winfrey Show with a card explaining what she was trying to do. Well, not long after that, Oprah named Sarah's Spanx product one of Oprah's favorite things, and sales took off. Finally, after years of following her courage, Sarah resigned her position with Donka, and in that year, Spanx reached $4 million in sales, then $10 million in her second year. The next year, Sarah made another courageous move and signed a contract with QVC, the home shopping channel. And the rest is history. Ten years later, Sarah Blakely landed on the cover of Forbes magazine for being the youngest self-made female billionaire in the world. Sarah's journey began when she sat down and wrote a list of her strengths and got bold in bringing those strengths to what she was trying to do. When we give into courage, yes, we may fail. Yes, it is hard work. But yes, we often find more than we think we will. Next, to get a bit more courage, we may need to get a bit vulnerable. You see, people who are afraid to act often have less confidence in themselves, and this lack of confidence manifests itself in many ways. 
procrastination, perfectionism, and so on. But to open up about one's self-doubt, to expose one's vulnerabilities, can have a positive, empowering effect. By identifying what we're afraid of, we reduce our fear of the situation, which gives us the courage to act. So, in what area of your life are you needing more courage? The courage to act, the courage to admit mistakes, the courage to stick to your goals, to face a bad relationship, or wherever it might be, it may be empowering to take some time to really consider and write what you are afraid of. Be specific. In the identification of it, you may find the inspiration to tackle it. You know, one famous theater actor who's deathly afraid of acting in live theater and is afraid because she's terrified of making a mistake in front of people has learned to put on courage for every performance. She said, the secret to life is this. When you hear the sound of cannons, walk toward them. In other words, clearly identify what you're afraid of and face it head on. I've noticed that this allows me to put into the right perspective what I need to do, and it gives me courage. You know, over the years in my work, I've had to face a number of difficult conversations, some about how I need to improve and some about how someone I work with needs to improve. And I used to stew about these conversations. How can I say to someone in a one-on-one meeting that they are not meeting performance expectations? How can I say the things that need to be said to help them improve? And what I found is the longer I stewed, the more difficult it became, the less courage I had. But when I learned to sit down and write out the discussion, I found this helped me do two things. See the person's performance more objectively and identify how I could genuinely help them. And when it became about helping them and I narrowed the performance improvement topics to one or two or three things, it became easier for me to do. I also found if you feel awkward about a conversation, just say so. We're all human. Be humble and Take full responsibility for your being afraid and for not having raised the issue sooner or whatever it is that you need to talk about. And courage to face a difficult decision is likely something we all face from time to time. As Winston Churchill said, courage is what it takes to stand up and speak. And courage is also what it takes to sit down and listen. Now, there are things that keep us from exercising courage. We all have them in our life. Guilt pride, excuses, and more. And if we could remove these things, it would allow us to do what we need to with more courage. You know, the Titanic sank in the early morning hours of April 15th in the cold waters of the North Atlantic. And we now know that there were three ships in proximity to the Titanic when the distress calls were going out. The first one, the Samson, was approximately seven miles away from the sinking ship. Only seven miles. They could even see the Titanic, but they turned their backs. After the disaster, the first officer of this ship told a newspaper in Norway that the Samson had been within sight of the Titanic the night the great ship went down. And according to his story, the 147-foot steam-powered schooner with eight seal hunting boats and a crew of 45 had been cruising in an ice field north of Titanic's position. When the crew first spotted the masthead lights and rockets from Titanic on the horizon, he said he sent a man to the crow's nest with binoculars for a better view, 
And that person returned with a report of many lights on the sea and rockets being fired. You see, the Samson, though, had been sealing, hunting seals illegally off the coast. And the captain was wary of being discovered with his cargo. And not knowing the extent of the Titanic's disaster, he decided not to respond, something that cost a number of lives. Sometimes courage is not about insane bravery. It may be about setting our own mistakes or priorities or time or inconvenience aside for someone else. Obviously, the crew of the Samson did not possess this royal quality. Now, there was another ship approximately 14 miles away from Titanic. The Californians saw the distress signals, but they were surrounded by ice and it was night. And it wasn't probably comfortable for them to move. And if they did move, they could be sunk as well. So they decided to wait until morning. The third ship was approximately 58 miles away and was traveling in the opposite direction when they heard cries over the radio. They responded. The captain of this ship just prayed to God for direction, turned his boat around, waded into the ice fields in the dark, and kept going. The boat was the Carpathia. They saved 705 lives that night. And those lives were saved because one man, the captain, decided to act with courage. He was Captain Arthur Rostron. Here's the point. As you approach your business or life or family, consider the role of courage in helping you reach your goals. Consider the good you could do in influencing your children and your team if you modeled courage more in your daily walk. Remember Helen. Despite her fears, she reboarded the next plane and traveled her way into the life she wanted to live. And when you're unsure or afraid, play out the scenario. Get real about what could happen if you fail and what could happen if you win. And don't let the tendency to overthink the negative keep you from your next courageous move. You'll find you will get more courage and you'll get more clear about what you're trying to do. And remember, your acting with courage can and will have good consequences for those on your team and in your life. You just might save them in more ways than you think. Most of all, thanks for being here today. And don't forget to share this podcast with a friend and join us next week for another podcast as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become.